This is a podcast for Journal of Applied Ecology, a British Ecological Society publication. Welcome to the Journal of Applied Ecology's podcast. I'm Lydia Groves, a publishing assistant for the British Ecological Society, and I'll be your host today. Today's episode is all about fire as an extremely powerful force with the ability to continually shape many different ecosystems across the world. On this episode, we're joined by researchers Tersha Stradham, Isaac Smith and Brian Van Wilgen, who will discuss their recently published free-to-read article, which is entitled High-Intensity Fires May Have Limited Medium-Term Effectiveness for Reversing Woody Plant Encroachment in African Savannah. Without further ado, let's get into today's episode and hand over to our guests for introductions. So, my name is Tersha Stradom. I'm the abiotic scientist based in Skukuza in Kruger National Park in South Africa. And uh, my key research interests are around fires, soils, and hydrology. And how I came to study fires, I've been working in the park starting as a student roughly 12 years ago. And uh, my master's was actually looking at the effect of fires on soils in Kruger National Park. So that's how I started dabbling in fires and uh, savannas. My name is uh, Isaac Smith. Um, I'm a senior scientist working for South Africa National Parks and I was based for quite close to 17 years in Kruger National Park um, in South Africa, but I'm now based in the Garden Route National Park in the Southern Cape, also in South Africa. I'm a conservation scientist, which means I focus on both applied ecological questions, but also in social ecological questions. And basically it's on, on research that's got the aim to help inform management. Um, so there's always this sort of applied approach towards, towards the science. And I sometimes describe my job as being a translator, translating research into management implications and translating management concerns or questions into research questions. So working at that interface between science and management. The reason why I became involved in fire research is really because fire is so important in many of the systems we study and it's quite under, it's misunderstood quite often by people as, as a bad thing. And actually it's, it's critical in these systems. And, and what I particularly like about fires is that fires are both a driver of certain things in the savannas and also a responder. So a driver, um, for example, uh, let's think about, think about herbivores. So if you have a fire, animals will move into that area afterwards because of the green flush. But then as a responder, herbivores would also eat the grass and then reduce fires. So it's a very nice integrative process in savannas of driving processes and responding to processes. And then secondly, as I mentioned earlier, I focus on applied aspects. So fire is one of the things that we can, to some degree, manage in protected areas. Okay, my name is Brian van Wilgen. I'm a emeritus professor at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. I began my career by studying a degree in forestry. And when I joined the forestry department, we were just starting out in early 1970s, implementing a very large prescribed burning program across hundreds of thousands of hectares. And the other thing about fire is that it doesn't restrict you to a particular vegetation type. It, you, you know, there are many different vegetation types that burn, grasslands, savannas, shrublands, and so on. 
allowed me to go and work in different parts of the country and in different uh, ecosystems. So I've been working on and off with uh, fire management in Kruger National Park for over 30 years now. Well, thank you everyone for telling us a bit more about yourselves. Leading on from that, I'd like to ask how you went about planning for such an extensive research project. I know this was over about 10 years. And ultimately, how it came to be that this was something that you decided you'd like to share with the rest of the ecological community. This research has basically two, two main reasons why we did this research. And one of the reasons can be described as proactive, using high-intensity fires to our benefit. And the second reason can be seen as reactive in the sense that we expect that we might get um, more and more of these high-intensity fires under future climatic conditions. So there's sort of a, a reactive and a proactive reason for this project. And I'll maybe kick off with the, with the proactive reason first. And that's due to bush encroachment. So bush encroachment in savannas is when you start to get one woody plant species or a, a tree or a bush that starts increasing in density and it becomes quite homogenous in, in the landscape, um, both in terms of structure, so how big it is, um, and in terms of, of composition, it's just one species. And, and this bush encroachment has got various implications for biodiversity, which is something that we're very interested in, but also in terms of agriculture, because as it becomes denser with bushes, you've got less grass. So your agricultural potential also also go down. So quite interested in, or well, bush encroachment has increased in savannas across the world, not just in, in Africa, but also in other continents, North America, Australia. And one of the big reasons for this is due to CO2 fertilization. So what that means is that carbon dioxide has increased in the atmosphere, and this acts almost as a, a steroid for, for, for woody plants to really um, start growing much faster and more effective. And it disadvantages grasses because grasses evolved under lower CO2 conditions over the past million years. So now when you get increases in CO2 in the atmosphere, you suddenly get more bushes and trees and shrubs um, and they start outcompeting grass. So you've got this battle of the of the trees and the grass in savannas and that's what makes a savanna a savanna is this forever this battle between the trees and and the grasses but now it seems like global change might be favoring the one growth form which is the the woody species in savannas and that's actually of a big a big concern as i've explained earlier due to biodiversity agricultural etc so long story short one of the possible ways to, to manage bush encroachment is to have high-intensity fires. And uh, we were interested in this partly because of what we read in the literature, but then also there was this high-intensity fire in another protected area in South Africa in around 2008, which an, where an area that used to be bush encroach had a very high-intensity fire, and it opened up and it allowed grasses to come back through one single event. Um, so we got curious whether one would actually be able to use high-intensity fires as a way to address this concern. 
So that was the proactive reason for being interested in high-intensity fires and testing whether we can use it as a management tool, essentially. And and the second reason, which is the, the reactive reason, due to changing climate conditions, if we get um, higher temperatures and possibly drier conditions in future, we can expect these high intensities to increase. So we talk about 30-30-30 conditions. So 30, um, if, if temperatures are higher than 30 degrees centigrade, if relative humidity is below 30% humidity, and if wind speeds are higher than 30 um, kilometers an hour, and then you get these really fast and high intensity fires. So based on climatic predictions, we expect these might be increasing in future. But we don't know what, what will happen under these conditions. And, and it's very hard to predict when and where these fires will occur. So by doing an experiment like this, you can actually set it up to do your pre-measurements. And then when these conditions are, have a high intensity fire under controlled conditions. So it's high intensity, but with adequate fire breaks and fire permits and everything in place. And then you can study afterwards the effects. So that was the second reason for, for this project. Thanks, Isaac, for that really, really good overview of the project. I'm good to ask now if you can, in very plain terms, explain the novelty of your research article and explain the key takeaways for anyone who might be listening. What does it contribute to our understanding of savannah fires? And more specifically, how does it build on and contribute to our understanding of applied ecology in these ecosystems? You know, most researchers and scientists they they develop a theory of how vegetation reacts to fires and a lot of that theory is developed on relatively small plots experimental plots where they apply fires at at different intensities or at different times of the year or at different intervals and so on and from that you you develop a, a theory of how the vegetation will respond but that may be quite different from lighting a fire over a large area because the fire on a small plot doesn't develop the same pattern as it does when you, you, when you let it run across the landscape. So this was novel in, in that we were conducting an experiment, not at the scale of one or two hectares, but at the scale of several thousand hectares. And I don't think there have been very many studies that have actually put out an experiment at that scale. So that's one of the, one of the things that was novel about our, our research. The second thing was that we, we combined observations on the ground with remote sensing. So Isak over there is a boffin using a thing called LIDAR. It's a, it's a remote sensing tool, and it can map out the shape of the vegetation from the sky. And we could look at the structure of the vegetation before and after this, the fire and how it developed over time. And that was combined then with ground observation. We actually marked and followed individual trees on the burnt areas to see what happened to them over time. So this combination of ground studies plus, plus remote sensing. And then finally, uh, you know, we've done this uh, experiment over quite a long time period. You know, we're now assessing the effects after 10 years. This is really uh, applied ecology, and that's why we chose your journal, looking at things in a practical way. Just how practical is it going to be to apply these kinds of fires to large areas uh, repeatedly over time? The findings were initially that, that it worked. 
the bushes got less dense and and uh, we we thought yeah you know it's, it's working but then we went back after 10 years we found that in fact it had had returned to a condition that was worse than it was 10 years ago so the conclusion really is that you know fire is the only tool that we can the only thing that we can change we can't change the carbon dioxide levels in the air we can't change that those kinds of things and and Carbon dioxide appears to be a very, very powerful fertilizer. It's now overriding any other effects that, that we can have. So it's, it's, a, it's a cause for worry, but uh, I think it's important to communicate these things. Brilliant. If we're looking to the future now, where do you think the research should be directed towards next? And I think especially as this was such a long-term study, were there any unexpected challenges you faced along the way anything you were able to pinpoint that you might like to change in the future. This could be challenges you faced in the field or even during the write-up of your results. So I think it's quite important for us to um, recognise that Kruger has a long history of research and monitoring. So, of course, um, just because we found this 10 years later after this experiment, this is not the end of the experiment and of monitoring. So we will still continue with monitoring on these sites going forward. It's also quite important that we also make use of what's called strategic adaptive management in Kruger National Park, which in essence supports a what we call learning by doing approach. So if you trial something based on the best available knowledge and literature at the time and it doesn't work, it's okay. You then adapt and you then try the next, the next best approach. So since the fires didn't exactly help us, these high intensity fires didn't exactly help us in combating bush encroachment in the longer term. We're now trying to explore using fires differently because like Brian and, and Issa both said that fire is one of the few things that we can actually control and manage in the landscape as opposed to increased CO2 and uh, droughts, etc. Those are things that are outside of our hands um, and outside of our control. So now we're trying to explore the use of fires at a different time of the year and not the high intensity fires which get applied during the peak dry season because that's also a time of the, of the year in which the vegetation is then dormant. They are dormant and a lot of the reserves are then below ground where they do not actually get the effect of the fire. So now what we're trying to do is we're trying to apply early dry season fires as you, as you come out of the wet season, out of the growing season, you then have your grasses that are starting to get dry, but your shrubs, your woody species that you're trying to target might still be in leaves. So they're still actively growing. So if you were to maybe have them burnt at a time when they might be a bit more vulnerable to that, that might have an effect on it. And then we're also trying to then also try to maybe burn early wet season fires. So now you have these woody species coming out of a couple of months of dormancy where they haven't been actively growing. They're using their last bits of of carbonate reserves in their roots and they're using that to now grow as they start growing into the wet season and maybe that might be a time to actually try to use the fire which will both be these two kinds of fires would be much cooler than those high intensity fires that would be applied in the middle of the dry season so maybe we try using the fires a bit differently at a different time of the year and when the vegetation is in a different physiological state maybe that might have a greater impact on the on the vegetation. So those are the kinds of things that we're trying to look into going forward. Yeah, and then like both Isaac and Brian has also mentioned, it is quite important that we do recognize 
the impact that increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has on vegetation. And like Isaac said nicely, it is like a steroid. So these are the kinds of things that we'd be aiming to focus on going into the future. Thank you, Tertia. Moving on now, are there any people or organisations that you'd like to thank and maybe shout out for their role in helping you progress this research? Yeah, so some shout outs from our side. It is also important that we do recognise our additional team members over and above myself, Brian and Isaac. There were quite a few other co-authors quite involved in the study. And then over and above that, there are also larger departments and institutions that were involved as well. So these obviously um, include the guys involved from our park management team and our rangers. So they were quite instrumental in the approvals and the support for conducting such an experiment in the park. And as well as on the ground support from the rangers in particular during the experiment. There's also a number of academics, and this is a prime example of how we could interface between both management and the academic field and scientists as well. And then last but not least, is Working on Fire. So they are an organization that we used to help us apply this experiment, because like Brian said, it was a large area where we did apply this, this landscape fires. And Working on Fire helped us apply it in a safe manner, and we had both ground and aerial support during the application of these fires. So those are some of the groups for the shout out. And lastly, as we near the end of our episode today, I'd like to ask if you have any key takeaways or final points that you feel it's important to share with the wider community. I've got something that I'd like to say, and I haven't discussed it with my colleagues here yet. But to me, what I'm learning as I get older is that these ecosystems are actually quite complex. And if you can imagine it's something like a a balloon filled with water, and you want that balloon to take on a particular shape. So you squeeze it at one end and it bulges out at the other end, and and then you try and squeeze both ends and it bulges. So there are all of these factors, which Isop called drivers, that are shaping this ecosystem. So you get climatic cycles, like you get droughts when everything dries up and there's no grass, and then you get floods like they're having right now, and the place is going to look very green for a long time. So you have grazers like zebras and wildebeest and buffaloes that are eating all the grass and preventing the the fires from occurring. Or the fires, on the other hand, which are burning up all the the grass and leaving the herbivores with nothing to eat. And then you get very damaging animals like elephants, which, well, they do eat grass, but they also damage the trees and pull them down and so on. So these things are constantly interacting in unpredictable ways. And you as the manager, you have to also deal with all of the ways that the ecosystem responds. Plus, you have to deal with uh, budget changes and, uh, and influencing what you do. So it's, it's a very challenging environment in which to work, but it's also very rewarding to get to understand how these things work. I agree with you, Brian, and uh, I think something that that also stood out for me is that in ecology, yes, there's all these interactions. You know, what was the rainfall just prior to you running your experiment? Um, Because there's been some work in other places um, in the USA suggesting that if you have high-intensity fires after a drought, you might actually be able to curb bush encroachment better But then in the savannah systems in Africa, where we've got a lot of herbivores, when you have the drought conditions, you don't have a lot of grass left because the herbivores are eating that. 
So it's, it's very context specific and there's all these interactions. And then also time lags. We study something and we come to, to some conclusion, but then over time things start changing again. So I think time lags um, is, is so critical and a lot of funding and proposal cycles are really so short compared to, to the time cycles that happens in, in nature. And then just maybe a final th- thought from myself, um, Dersha mentioned uh, strategic adaptive management as a way that we do decisions. And, and sometimes people might be upset and they say, how can you experiment with, with these things? You need to know. But the reality is that whatever you do in life is an experiment because we do not actually know what the outcome will be because it is complex systems. And the only choice that you really do have is whether you learn from it or not. And if you wait to have the best, to have the, the final answer before you got to do anything, you're not going to do anything. And that's going to be a big problem as well, because you are, that is a decision in itself. So I think seeing management as a way of of learning and then adapting. And I sometimes say to people, if you look at the Kruger National Park, the fire management policy has changed quite a lot from the 1930s up to now. Um, And you can interpret that in two ways. Either we don't know what we're doing or we are learning and adapting Um, and whether people would be more comfortable if we still do what we did in the 1930s. And I don't think people would feel that way. So I really think one needs to be reflexive and reflecting and, and learning and then changing again. And I think that's why it was important for us to, to publish this paper as well, to share what we've learned, to share what we still don't understand. And, and that's the way we, we built science to inform management in, a, in an honest and transparent manner. If this podcast episode sparked your interest, then feel free to read the paper on the Journal of Applied Ecology.